Well, the book of Revelation is written to seven churches, and in these opening chapters that we've been walking through, Jesus gives the Apostle John a specific message that he wants to give to each one of those seven churches. And as we dive now into the fifth of these messages, uh, let's not forget just how significant it is that Revelation is written to local churches. This book, Revelation, is a book for the local church. It's relevant to our day-to-day life as a church, as the body of Christ. And, and these messages, I think, we see, or in these messages, we see that most clearly. Um, but I want to really make sure we press into that so that we don't forget that as we move on. Because, yes, these messages are very relevant to our life as a local church. But what this will teach us is that even as we press on deeper into the book, everything else we're going to see is also just as relevant to the life of the local church. And uh, so with that, let's go ahead and read this message uh, to the church in Sardis, Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And since these words are breathed out by God and come with the very authority of Jesus Christ himself, if you're able, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. The Holy Spirit says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Well, those of you who have been at Rocky Point a long time could tell you, that the church used to have a slogan, a church alive is worth the drive. A church alive is worth the drive. I mean, sure, our campus is a few miles outside of town, but that treacherous journey is worth it, right? I mean, hopefully you found that if you're here today. Well, um, I think that phrase, a church alive, is, uh, it's, it's a phrase that kept on coming to mind as I was studying this passage because the message to the church in Sardis, Sardis leads us to ask the question, what is a church alive? If a church is alive, what makes it that way? Is it alive because people are willing to drive a long way to get here? Is it alive because there's a lot of activity among us? Is it alive because a lot of people speak well of us? 
What is it that makes a church alive? The truth is what the message to the church in Sardis teaches us is that it's an important question because a church can have the appearance of life without having real spiritual life as Jesus intends. If you've ever been to a wax museum, well, if you've ever been to a good wax museum, you've probably looked at a wax sculpture of a celebrity and thought, wow, that's so lifelike. But I trust that you didn't start then talking to the sculpture thinking that you were having a conversation with the celebrity that it represents because that would be crazy. (laughs) Well, it's just as crazy to act like a church is alive when it's actually dead inside. And I believe the message of Jesus to the church in Sardis and the message of Jesus to us in this passage can be summed up like this. Don't settle for lifelike. Don't settle for lifelike. Well, how do we do that? First, live by the life giver. Live by the life giver. Jesus identifies himself as such in the first part of verse 1. He says, and to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So he offers two ways of identifying himself. The first is that he's the one with the seven spirits. Now that term, the seven spirits of God, is a term referring to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. There are not seven Holy Spirits. Revelation uses symbolic language, and numbers are some of the most frequently used symbols. The number seven means perfect or complete. So to refer to the Holy Spirit as the seven spirits of God is to identify the Holy Spirit as fully God and as totally perfect. A couple of chapters later, Jesus is going to be revealed as the one having the seven spirits. If you just flip over a couple of pages with me to Revelation 5, look at uh, verse 6. John says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, again, we have this symbolic language here. Jesus is pictured as a lamb standing as though it had been slain. This is a picture of Jesus being the one who died for our sins and then came back to life. He was slain, but he's still standing. He died and he rose again. The lamb's seven eyes are a symbol of the seven spirits of God, the Holy Spirit sent out into all the earth. After Jesus died and rose again, he ascended to heaven. And when he ascended to heaven, he then sent the Holy Spirit out into all the earth to dwell in his disciples. Uh, and it's, it's significant that we're talking about how Jesus ascended to heaven today, because today is actually uh, what's known in, in many traditions as Ascension Sunday, because this past week, uh, nearly 2,000 years ago, was the week that Jesus uh, ascended to heaven. But in any case, after he ascended, he sent the Holy Spirit 
out into all the world to dwell in his disciples. Why is it significant that Jesus identifies himself as the one who has the seven spirits of God? Because the Holy Spirit gives life. The Holy Spirit is the life giver. Paul describes the Holy Spirit as the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead. Uh, He says in 1 Corinthians 3, 6 that the spirit gives life. The Holy Spirit, according to Jesus in John 3, is the one who causes a person to be born again. The Holy Spirit is the one who produces spiritual life in us. He's the one who produces fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, etc. The church in Sardis was missing this spiritual life, and they needed to be revived. They needed to be resuscitated, and so they needed the Holy Spirit sent by Jesus into all the earth. If we are to be a church alive, it will only ever be by depending on the Holy Spirit. It will only ever be by depending on the Holy Spirit. A church can appear vibrant. It can have signs of life, yet be missing true spiritual life. A church is not alive just because it has Sunday school and gathered worship and small groups and kids ministry and youth ministry and college ministry and mission trips and men's breakfast and women's brunch and VBS and camps and retreats and conferences. A lot of activity, that is not spiritual life. A church with a lot of activity may appear alive, but activity alone is not what makes a church alive. A church is alive when the Spirit of God is at work among us. A church is alive when things are happening in our midst that can only be explained by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. A church is alive when the Holy Spirit is changing hearts. A church is alive when the Holy Spirit is invigorating our ministry. A church is alive when people are coming out of spiritual darkness and trusting in Jesus and coming into the light. A church is alive when we are making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. A church is alive when love is coming out of a heart where once there was no love. A church is alive when you see joy experienced even in suffering. A church is alive when you see peace, even in the midst of tribulation. A church is alive when a person is presented with God's word and they abandon their former beliefs in order to accept the truth of God instead. A church is alive when relationships that once were irreconcilable are being miraculously mended by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. So if we are going to be a church alive, may we not settle for lifelike, but may we instead depend on the Holy Spirit and experience his power to do what only he can do. Well, Jesus also identifies himself as the one who has the seven stars, the seven stars. This is another symbol. If you go back to chapter 1, um, In uh, this vision that Jesus shows of himself to John, he's holding uh, seven stars in his right hand. And in verse 20, he says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand uh, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels 
of the seven churches. So the, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. These angels are representatives of these local churches. Each angel represents its particular church in such a way that Jesus actually addresses each of the messages to the seven churches to the angel of the church. They're representatives. And in particular, what we need to recognize is these angels are heavenly representatives of the churches. <coughs> As we'll see, the church in Sardis had a good reputation on earth, but they had a bad reputation in heaven. In the eyes of men on earth, this church was known for being a lie. But in the eyes of God in heaven, this church was as good as dead. As God bore witness to, this, to, to the reality of this church before his angels, as he looked at the angels who represent these churches, he saw clearly that this was a church that was not alive. If we are to be a church alive, we must not care about the opinion of men on earth, but instead we need to care about the opinion of God in heaven. Our reputation on earth has nothing to do with whether or not we are a church alive. The only thing that matters is what God in heaven says about us. Our goal is not to be the popular church. Our goal is not to have great Google reviews. Our goal is not to have articles written about us in church magazines. Our goal is not to be the church that everyone in town is talking about. Our goal is to be a church that Jesus is talking about. What we should be living for is what Jesus promises to the one who conquers in verse 5, Revelation 3, 5. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. That's what we need to live for. What does Jesus say about us? We want to live for his pleasure, not the opinion of humans. Jesus is the one who has the seven spirits and the one who has the seven stars. He's the one who gives life. And he's the one that we should be living for. So may we live by the life giver. Second, if we are not to settle for life-like, we must repent of lifelessness. We must repent of lifelessness. Jesus rebukes the church in Sardis in the second part of verse 1. Look with me there. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation or name of being alive, but you are dead. This was a church that was known for being alive, but they were dead. Now, that's not to say that every single individual in this congregation was an unbeliever in spiritual death. The, the point is that this church as a whole looked good on the outside, but their spiritual reality inside did not match their good name. So Jesus then says in verse 2, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. The problem again in Sardis was that their works were not complete in God's eyes. In man's eyes, they looked alive. They seemed to be, to be doing good work, but Jesus tells them that God's eyes see the reality. It seems that this church had the same problem that Jesus describes in Matthew 23, 27, where he says, 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. On the outside, beautiful. On the inside, death. Well, keep a finger in Revelation 3 and turn back with me to 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy 3. I want to look even further at what the Bible teaches about this dynamic. 2 Timothy chapter 3, and look with me at verses 1 through 5. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then catch this, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. Now just to look at this passage, when the Bible refers there to the last days, it refers to the time period that began when Jesus sent the Holy Spirit out into the, all, the, all the earth, and it will end when Jesus physically returns at his second coming. So this is the same period of time that the church of Sardis was living in, and the period of time that we are living in today. This is a time of difficulty, and one of the symptoms of this time of difficulty is that there will be people who have the appearance of godliness, but they deny the power of godliness. They look alive, but they're not actually living by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when all you have is the appearance of godliness without the actual substance underneath, well then, what actual substance underneath do you have, according to this passage? Ungodliness. Love of self love of money, love of pleasure, so on. And so Jesus calls this church that only had the appearance of godliness to repent. He says, wake up. They had been asleep at the wheel, not realizing they were about to drive off a cliff. They were missing real spiritual life. He says, strengthen what remains. Which is good news because this church was at this time as good as dead, but not always lost. There was still something that remained. It was about to die, but he says, strengthen what remains. Not all is lost. In his kindness, Jesus gave this sleepy church a chance to wake up. In his kindness, he gave this weak church a chance to renew its strength. If we find our church lacking spiritual life, how do we receive and, and act on this call that Jesus makes, this call to repent? How do we strengthen what remains? Well, look at the first part of verse 3. Remember, then, what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. The church in Sardis was not keeping what they had heard. In 
If you've been with us since the beginning of this Revelation study, do you remember how important hearing and keeping is? Look back with me at Revelation 1, verse, <coughs> chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. The problem in the church in Sardis was that they were not keeping what they had heard, so they needed to repent. If we want our works to be complete in the sight of God, we must remember what we received and heard and keep it. We must remember the gospel. We must remember that Jesus died to save us from our sins and to make us a people zealous for good works. We must remember the first and second greatest commandments and love God with all that we are and love our neighbor as ourselves. We must remember the great commission that Jesus has called us to go tell the gospel to the nations, to bring in disciples into the fellowship of the church and to grow up together into Christ. If we do not keep what we have heard, we will become a church that falls into a spiritual coma. We must hear and keep. If we do not repent of our spiritual sleepiness, Jesus is coming. Look at the second part of verse 3. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Jesus warns this church that he is going to come like a thief. Thieves don't announce that they're coming. They come when you least expect. And likewise, Jesus says, you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now, this is a metaphor that Jesus used in the Gospels to refer to his second coming. But here, he's not talking about his physical return. Uh, it's not as though, as if this church didn't repent, he was going to move up the timing of his second coming to the first century. Uh, so he's not talking about the, 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 his physical second coming. No, he's describing spiritually coming in judgment. It's like how we've already seen how he warned the church in Ephesus that he would come and remove their lampstand. Or he, war he warned the church in Pergamum that he would come and war against those who held false teaching with the sword of his mouth. If we do not repent when we are in a state of spiritual sleepiness, Jesus will bring judgment upon us. If we settle for the reputation of man instead of the reputation of God, we are setting ourselves up for judgment. If we are content with the appearance of godliness while we cover up ungodliness under the surface, we are asking for Jesus to bring judgment. You know, one of the, one of the sad realities in the last, just, just in the last few years, as social media has made everything public and everything global and everything known everywhere, um, there's been so much more visibility of story after story after story after story of churches whose works were not complete, but they didn't wake up. So they received the judgment of Jesus. And there are too many stories to count. And in every case, the church appears alive. It's a church that has a great reputation. Every other church in the country wishes they were more like that church. But what nobody saw, except God, 
was that underneath the surface was spiritual death. Immorality swept under the rug. Accusations excused as not credible. Toxic, brutal leadership. Love of money. Love of pleasure. Manipulation. Authoritarianism. And when there's no repentance, Jesus comes in judgment. And the church implodes. And their reputation among men all of a sudden is tarnished. And people lose their jobs and pews that were once filled are empty. But ultimately, in a way that no one would ask for, Jesus is glorified. Because the truth of his righteousness is seen for what it is. Sin is exposed as sin. And the church's reputation now actually matches the reality that was underneath all along. Because God will not be mocked. Jesus will not tolerate churches that are alive in name only. So we must be vigilant to remember what we have received and heard and keep it. When we see spiritual sleepiness among us, we need to repent of lifelessness. We must depend on the Holy Spirit. We must strengthen what remains and not be content to settle for lifelike. We need to repent of lifelessness. And then finally, third, we need to live for eternal life. Live for eternal life. The good news in this passage is that not everyone in the church in Sardis had incomplete works. The church could be said to be dead, but not every single individual. Even in this church that was alive in name only, there were people who were different than the majority. Look at verse 4. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. These few people did not just have the appearance of godliness. They actually trusted in the power of the Holy Spirit. So they didn't stain their garments. They weren't hiding dead bones behind whitewashed tombs. And Jesus says these people will receive the reward of walking with him in white because they are worthy. They're worthy because their works are complete. They've not stained their garments. And they'll receive the reward of being clothed in white and walking with Jesus. Now, this idea can be challenging for those of us who have a high view of grace and a deep understanding of our own sin and, <coughs> and un, our unworthiness. I mean, wait a second. I thought no one was worthy. I thought our good works were filthy rags, not unstained garments. Well, let's just consider a couple of passages from Revelation about this idea of being clothed in white. Uh, so flip ahead with me to Revelation 7, first of all. In Revelation 7 and verse 14, John sees a vision of the church. I said to him, um, sir, you know, and he said to me, 
These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. And listen to this. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So according to Revelation, first and foremost, if we are clothed in white, it is because our robes have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. At the foundation level, if we are worthy, it's because we trust in Jesus' works, not because we trust in our works. At the same time, true faith always produces works. And so this aligns with what we see in another vision. Flip ahead to Revelation 19. Just like John saw a vision of the church in Revelation 7, John sees another vision of the church in Revelation 19 and verses 7 and 8. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride, the church, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. When the bride, the church, is clothed in fine, bright linen, uh, it is the clothing of righteous deeds. Our righteous deeds as Christians demonstrate our, our readiness, as we see in Revelation 19, or our worthiness, as we see in Revelation 3. But notice, even in Revelation 19 here, the only reason we can clothe ourselves in righteous deeds is because it was granted to us. Even our works are the result of the grace and generosity of God. So being worthy in this context involves works, but it begins and ends with the grace of God. Being worthy begins with the foundation of the grace of God through the work of Jesus at the cross, and then that worthiness is demonstrated through ongoing righteous deeds. When Jesus calls us to endure in good works, he's not calling us to earn eternal life. He's calling us to demonstrate the transformation that he's brought to our lives. He's calling us to bear the fruit that the Holy Spirit produces. He's calling us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. And really, all of this is another way of describing the call to conquer that we've seen throughout Revelation. In Revelation 12, 11, we're told that we will conquer by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. We'll conquer by trusting in Jesus' works, fundamentally, and we will conquer by living out a life of faithfulness, a life of faithfulness to Jesus, until the day that we meet him face to face. Those who will be worthy to walk with Jesus in white, trust in his grace through the cross, and live out his grace through the works that come from faith. Well, turn back with me to Revelation 3 and verse 5, where we see uh, the promises that Jesus makes in this message to the one who conquers by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Verse 5 of Revelation 3 says, The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So again, these are promises for the one who conquers, whose works are complete in the sight of God, who hears and keeps what they have received, 
who does not soil their garments. And first, again, the, the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments. And I want to show you one more picture of this in uh, Revelation 6. So just flip over maybe a page or two to Revelation 6 and look at verses 9 through 11. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who are to be killed as they themselves had been. On that day, when we conquer, we're clothed in white garments. The race is finished. There's no more need for patient endurance. Just wear the robe of reward and rest in the presence of your righteous God the first reward for the one who conquers. Second, he says about the one who conquers that he will never blot his name out of the book of life. Now, the book of life is this concept uh, throughout the Bible, and it's this register of every single person who has ever trusted in the mercy of God that comes through Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins and eternal life with him. It's, it's a register of every person who ever has trusted in God for mercy, and it's a register of every person who ever will trust in God for mercy. It is the book of life that contains everyone who will have eternal life forever with Jesus. Revelation 13 and verse 8 tells us that the names written in the book of life were written in it before the foundation of the world. And in Revelation 20, when John sees a vision of the final judgment, what he sees are first books, plural, books. He sees these books opened, and in these books contain a record of the works of every human being who has ever lived. Every human being will be judged according to their works recorded in these books. But then John sees another book, singular, and it's the book of life. And everyone whose name is not in the book of life is thrown into the lake of fire and receives the condemnation of God for all of eternity. But those whose names are written in the book of life will experience eternal life in a new heaven and a new earth with Jesus forever. So what a beautiful promise that this is. What an amazing assurance. If we are saved, we did nothing to get our name into the book of life. And we can do nothing to get our name blotted out of the book of life. If we persevere to the end, if we conquer, we demonstrate ourselves to be people whose names are eternally registered in the book of life. Finally, as we've already looked at before, Jesus promises the one who conquers that he will confess his name before his father and his angels. Jesus promises his endorsement to the one who conquers. Again, may we never settle for what humans say about us on earth. May we only ever live for what Jesus says about us 
in heaven. May we live for eternal life. Well, as we consider this message of the word of God, this message to the church in Sardis, the message that Jesus has had for us today, I wonder how do you need to respond to the word of God today? We don't want to just be hearers of the words that we have just received. We want to keep what is written. There's a response, and it's incumbent upon us to respond to what we've just heard. So how do you need to respond to the word of God that you've heard today? Maybe you realize you don't have any spiritual life in you because you've never trusted in Jesus to save you from your sins. Today, you need to know that Jesus died for your sins. He died to take the guilt and condemnation that you rightly deserve, and he took it on himself, and he bore the wrath of God for you as your substitute so that if you will place your faith in him, you can be forgiven and cleansed and rid of guilt and rid of condemnation, and you can be reconciled to God and know the joy of life with your creator forever. Today, if you are convicted that you don't have spiritual life in you, that you need to be born again, trust in Jesus. Place your faith in him for new life, for eternal life. Maybe you realize that you've been settling for activities and busyness instead of the power of the Holy Spirit. Today, you need to ask, you need to pray, ask God, the Holy Spirit, to move in your heart, to work in your life, that you might not settle just for going through the motions, but would experience the power of the Holy Spirit to make you like Christ, to bear the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience. Maybe you realize your works are not complete in the sight of God, and that really, uh, you've got a whitewashed outside and some dead bones on the inside. You've got the appearance of godliness, but inside is love of self and love of money, and you need to repent. And Jesus and his grace gives us the opportunity to repent. So if you're convicted that there is ungodliness hiding behind a facade that you've been putting up, repent, bring it into the light and experience the cleansing and forgiveness of Jesus. Maybe you realize you've been too concerned with the opinion of man instead of the opinion of God. And, and you need to repent for living for the wrong eyes and trust God and live for his eyes only. But wherever you are, however you need to respond to God's word today, please hear me. Don't settle for lifelike. You can fool men, but you can't fool God. And your joy will not be complete until you experience the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit to save you, to change you, to invigorate you. So live by the life-giver. Repent of lifelessness. Live for eternal life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for this message. And Lord, thank you for your rebukes and your warnings. 
Lord, they don't make us feel comfortable. They don't make us feel affirmed. But Lord, they save us. They save us. And so Lord, we thank you. Lord, I ask that we would not settle for life like that. We wouldn't settle for life like in our individual hearts, in our individual lives, and that we wouldn't settle for life like as a church. Lord, may we never rest on our laurels. May we never rest in being praised by men. Lord, would we instead trust in the Holy Spirit for real life, real repentance, real new birth, real invigoration, real transformation, real eternally significant life. And may we look to that day of eternal life that's coming, the reward that's coming, the life of walking with Jesus forever that awaits us, the eternal life that comes from having our names forever in the book of life. Uh, Lord, would we live with eyes for heaven, eyes for eternity, even as we seek to honor you here on earth. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand and Respond in song to the word of God.